0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Reality was starting to set in, and I seriously was wondering if I would never get to see anything
0: ever again. Becky Czar shares her personal experiences as a healthcare provider and young mom with total vision loss. I remember saying to her, Mom, I'm not strong enough. I had hit my rock bottom. My mom replied back to me, you can do this because you have a little boy who needs you. The Blind Reality. New episodes every second Tuesday of the month. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Joytha Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The benefits of participating in sport for people with disabilities have been well documented. Parasport provides an opportunity for physical fitness, learning valuable team building and leadership skills, as well as meeting people with and without disabilities. Canada has its share of decorated Paralympians and leaders in parasport. Additionally, there is growing interest in amateur and community-oriented leagues, associations, and teams to promote the inclusion of people with disabilities. Perhaps less known is the impact of the integration of people with disabilities in organized sports. It's worth pondering how leagues, teams, and sports organizations are modifying practices, policies, and structures to account for the presence of disability. Today, we discuss disability integration in sport. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. And welcome to the Pulse on AMI Audio. My name is Javitha Gupta, and I'm the host of the program. It's really great to be with you here today. And as I do off the top of every show, I just want to hope and remind you, uh, I just hope that everyone's doing well, for one thing. But I also want to remind you about our website, AMI.ca forward slash COVID-19, where if you want to keep up with the latest AMI audio segments dealing with the pandemic, you can check it all out in one place. So if you heard something on Now Brown or Kelly and Company or right here on the Pulse that dealt with the pandemic and you wanted to go back and have another listen, you can always go to AMI.ca forward slash COVID-19. Okay, so today I have a really exciting conversation lined up. I am so intrigued by this because although I'm not an athlete, I'm not a particularly outdoorsy person. I recognize that over the years, there's really been a shift in how we treat para-sport and para-athletes, and there's a growing movement, I'd like to think, away from charitable discourses and medical discourses, and a firmer entrenchment of the idea that para-athletes are first and foremost sportsmen and women and athletes, and that there is a need to be far more inclusive in the para-sport movement obviously, but also within the mainstream sports movement. So I'm very pleased to have today as my guest, Danielle Pierce, who is a community organizer an artist and an assistant professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Alberta. Danielle is a co-author of a recently published study, Unimaginable. Para-athletes, a discourse analysis of athletics websites in Canada. Whoa, that's a big mouthful. Hey, hello, and welcome (laughs) to The Pulse. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. Uh, So, Danielle, one of the things that I did not give away in the title, but I wanted to talk about, because I know that academics never do anything without a reason, is that in (laughs) the word unimaginable, un, U-N, is in brackets, and then in para-athletes, the word para is in brackets. Now, am I just being a grammar fiend, or was there a reason for that? Uh, There's a really
1: big reason for that. I mean, one of the the really sort of key points that we make in the article is that uh, when athletes uh, are represented on websites and so on of organizations that are theoretically in charge of our programs, we really wouldn't want to be interested in when they're actually represented as athletes, where when disability is relevant, it's brought forward, but when it's not, it's not. And so the para next to athletes is, I think, really to, to sort of say that um, we could also just be imaginable as athletes in the vast majority mm-hmm. of situations, although that is not sort of what websites show. And the mm-hmm. un- unimaginable speaks to how um, absent <laughs> para-athletes were from the vast majority of websites that we looked at.
0: Mm-hmm. We'll turn to the study in just a few minutes. But for those of us who maybe don't follow para para sport in quite the same way or we're not as plugged in, just give us an overview. In your view, how successfully have Canada's national and provincial sports organizations managed to integrate people with disabilities? So, this requires a bit of a backstory. Um, I'm actually a former Paralympic athlete.
1: I like to call myself a recovering Paralympic athlete um, because, uh, once sort of, my, my impairment is not one that typically is, is included in, in parasport. And mm-hmm. so, when I could no longer play parasport, I really had a, um, a sort of lack of opportunity to try and find. So, I was trying to find basically recreational opportunities to play things for fun. And what I found is I could find almost no information at all. On websites, And this includes para-sport in terms of, um, you know, wheelchair basketball or uh, cross-country skiing and things like this, but also just basic recreation things. If I want to go bowling or, you know, I want to join a yoga um, activity, how little information there actually is about whether or not I'd be welcome to join or whether it'd be accessible. And mm-hmm. so uh, when you think about the sort of history of what, what para-sport is, it started by a, with a whole bunch of organizations, sometimes led by disabled folks. Um, that were designed to sort of create activities for us to do because we were so excluded. And so you had this whole series of small organizations that were sometimes disability-run but often disability-centered. And then there was a move uh, in the 90s in particular, 90s and 2000s, uh, for Mm -hmm. sport to basically be integrated so that mainstream organizations, Athletics Canada, Hockey Canada, Skiing, uh, Nordic Skiing, that uh, these are large mainstream organisations would take the wheelchair uh, and disability um, sport um, clubs sort of under their jurisdiction, and mm-hmm. the idea was really hopeful. The idea was that hey, great, look, we have all these resources. Hockey Can has so many more resources than these small disability. Uh, sport organizations and so we could have this really amazing sort of breadth of of access to the sport but what the study sort of shows is that perhaps the opposite is true that it's just been buried within these large organizations that are now in charge and that these organizations do almost nothing to um, support uh, people to be able to access and learn how to access uh, sports and activities that they're choosing.
0: Mm. So let's talk a bit about your study. What were you trying to accomplish, and why were you so interested in looking at websites in particular?
1: I think part of it comes from my own experience of uh, feeling like I couldn't figure out whether I could participate in an activity or not. And a lot of friends mm-hmm. of mine um, with a wide range of disabilities had similar experiences where you always need to sort of call the organization to find out if you can actually show up um, and how frustrating this is. And of course, after nine times calling, and finding out you can't participate, you don't tend to call the 10th time. And so Mm -hmm. this kind of gets um, set up against um, some pretty bleak statistics about how many uh, people with disabilities in Canada participate in kind of organized sport of any kind. So some of the Canadian uh, government's own statistics show it's as low as 3%. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a pretty bleakly small number, and I think a lot of the reactions to that are, oh, how can we increase the motivation of disabled people to participate? And from my own personal experience, I'm like, it's not necessarily about motivation. It's that actually, like, the information isn't out there. We actually don't even know how to access these programs and the amount of effort it takes for us to access and the amount of times that we try to access it um, and then we're told that, no, it's not accessible, no, they're they're not open to people with our kind of disability um, can be really, I think, humiliating. Um, and, And so I really think that organizations having very clear, explicit information on their websites about mm-hmm. who, who can be involved, how we can involve, what are the kinds of barriers involved, can make a really big difference in people feeling not only that they could participate, but actually like accessing information in ways that are far less, um, I would say harmful.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm speaking to Assistant Professor Danielle Pierce from the University of Alberta's Department of Kinesiology, Sports and Recreation about a study on which they are a co-author that's looking at the inclusion of people with disabilities on the websites, in particular, of various sports organizations. I love to ask researchers, all researchers, about their methodologies. So tell us how you gathered all your data.
1: Okay so we started the study actually by looking at basically taking screen captures of of every page of uh, all the national sport organizations that were uh, in charge of parasport, so of all the kind of winter and summer parasports. And um, sometimes these organizations like Wheelchair Basketball Canada are disability sport specific, uh, but the vast majority of the time now in Canada, it would be a sort of mainstream organization like Hockey Canada or Athletics Canada that would be in charge. And so we compared across sports. Uh, trying to see sort of which sports did a really good job of highlighting their parasport programs, uh, linking to possible ways to get involved, things like this. And so we did this broad spectrum, but then in this article, we decided to do a deep dive on one sport because of course the national mm-hmm. sport organization is not who you generally contact if you want to start no. playing. <laughs>
0: exactly. And so
1: athletics is supposed to be one of the most well-integrated, it claims to be one of the most well-integrated sports in Canada. It was one of the first to be quote unquote fully integrated and so we decided that would be a, and it's also one of the most sort of highly participated in sports. So we decided that we'd focus on that, and so we did the same thing: took screen captures of every of the national organizations, of all of the provincial and territorial organizations in charge of, uh, theoretically in charge of fair sport, um, as well as all the clubs that we could find in Canada that either had any mention of disability or had had an athlete participate in the last 10 years at any competition. And so we did a, a lot of websites and a lot of pages and what we were looking for <laughs> in these pages methodologically was basically any reference to mention to uh, disability, inclusion, parasport, para-athletes, trying to see what was said. I mean, originally we just wanted to say what was said about us, how we were represented, mm-hmm. and then secondly, what kind of information they had about our programs, so we could kind of create sort of, I guess, best practices for, for organizations mm-hmm. who were trying to think about how to... Uh, reach out to get more athletes involved.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the things I've noticed uh, when I have ventured to look at uh, parasport uh, websites or just sports websites is the phrase, all are are welcome regardless of ability. So even those statements might indicate that there's a a desire to, to include people with disabilities or integrate people with disabilities, or does it just mean that you have you don't really have to have any prior experience. I mean, to the untrained observers such as myself, I'm not even clear about whether that's uh, that's demonstrating an intent to include people with disabilities. What do you say? Exactly. I mean, that was one of the first things we found is that almost no one actually had any information at all about disability (laughs) or parasport, even
1: when they're paid by the government to be in charge of parasport. And then when they did we've encoded very vague sentences like that as maybe inclusion in question mark. In my experience, where I see that is, yeah, when I call up and I say, Hey, can I become involved? And by the way, I'm a chair user. Uh, I almost never get a, yeah, come on out. We have equipment for you. We have coaches who are trained in supporting you.
0: You know, I think they really mean how much previous experience you have with the sport. My name is Javitha Gupta and with me is Danielle Pierce from the University of Alberta. Danielle, um, you know, often when you've done interviews or if I've done interviews, it tends to be a five minute conversation and you kind of summarize the key points. But I was hoping since we had a bit longer today, uh, you might talk to us a little bit about the theoretical underpinnings of your study. You're doing a Foucauldian discursive analysis of these websites. First of all, what does that mean? And what are the theoretical underpinnings of your study? So basically,
1: Michel Foucault was a French philosopher, post-structuralist, uh, if uh, you're familiar about kind of philosophical mm-hmm. um, kinds of thought. And one of the sort of tools that uh, he offered in some of his analysis is to think about words not only as describing things, but as doing things. So discourse is basically a way of talking about the ways that statements, enact, prescribe um, uh, action. And so it's a great way to think about, for example, policy, right? Or a perfect Mm -hmm. example is when you say, I do, when you get married or or someone declares someone married, they're not only describing it, they're actually enacting something in law that they are married. And Mm so when you think about um, ways people, athletes, for example, are not uh, included in websites, in some ways it does something, right? That that absence Mm -hmm. makes it, makes us as athletes sort of in some ways unimaginable within the sportscape, as someone who couldn't possibly mm-hmm. participate. Um, mm-hmm. it, it reduces our chance of getting involved. It prescribes what kinds of athletes would be welcome and would not be welcome. And so we're really thinking about what these particular uh, words and statements about disability or the lack thereof do. And so a great example mm-hmm. is uh, when we looked at actually disability-specific organizations. Well, of course, they were very specific about Paris more. But often they represented athletes in ways that made us seem like charity cases um, Mm. or uh, really focused on our medical differences and didn't necessarily treat us as athletes. And so that does something, right, that reproduces Mm. the idea that we are, um, that sport for us isn't just a right like anyone else, but it's something to help cure or fix us, that there's something wrong with us.
0: Right. And one always hopes that those discourses will dissipate over time or they'll just disappear. But uh, it, it feels like the, it's quite pernicious. It just kind of hangs around this charity model and the uh, medical model. Uh, what about the idea of the para-athlete as inspirational? So uh, <laughs> Stella Young is uh, famously yeah. uh, associated with the term inspiration porn. Is there this this pers- persistent idea that para athletes are inspirational?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I did a lot of my early research on precisely this, and it was because interview after interview, uh, people had to tell the same story every time, even if that story actually didn't match my experience of my life. Right? It's like when she was twenty one. A, I don't go by she, and B, I didn't suddenly <laughs> get a disease. Right? I I have, right. I have muscular dystrophy, so. Um, there's a way in which a story has to be told. Then sports saved me and I overcame. And I think there's a lot of – that is incredibly persistent. And actually sport organizations themselves often um, fundraise through not only pitiful discourse, but also this inspirational discourse. I think what I will tell you is I think the two are absolutely linked. You cannot have, you cannot have inspirational discourse without pity. Mm-hmm. And the proof of this is every time they're about to say an inspiration story – you always have to start with when they were and they'll have some articulation of the accident or some articulation of disability with sad piano music behind it. <laughs> right? They have to first construct you as pitiful because then construct you as inspirational.
0: Right. Uh, we've you know tossed these terms around quite a bit, and it just occurred to me that at least I seem to be using the terms integration and inclusion almost interchangeably. Uh, is that how you were using them, or do the terms take on different meanings in your research?
1: Uh, they take on different meanings in the field in general. Adapted physical activity. We think of integration as. The mode where we're going to put, yeah, for example, disability sport within um, a mainstream uh, like in within athletics Canada, for example, that would be integration we're physically moving those folks into the space. you can think about education this way right we're going to take kids mm-hmm. with disabilities and put integrate them into mainstream classes, including this mm-hmm. something much more um, Subjective, right? Do people actually feel feel fully involved? Do they feel like they belong? Um, Are they do they have uh, similar equitable opportunities? These are questions of inclusion, and so we can integrate a whole lot of things, but we're not necessarily doing anything towards inclusion. I think that is perhaps what exactly I'm finding in the study.
0: What are you finding in terms of inclusion? Do athletes feel like they're included? They might be able to do the sport or perform the activity, but how well are athletes um, included in the, the social aspects or the team-building aspects of whichever club or sport or association they're a part of?
1: Um, this wasn't part of this research scope, but I can tell you the research that's been done more generally is that um, those might be more depressing than my numbers, in fact. <laughs> But often it's sort of, you have the separate club that, that's um, treated quite differently. There might be the one disabled person in the club. I mean, often because of even the age group that Paralympians tend to get involved, you have this 35-year-old Paralympian, you know, or Paralympic athlete training in this club with a bunch of like 12, 14-year-olds, which, you know, it's, it's sometimes a quite a, an awkward kind of, um, sometimes they're racing on different tracks. They're rarely racing within the same competition. Swimming's a bit different in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you have sports like wheelchair basketball, where in Canada, at least, um, non-disabled people play alongside people who are classifiable or deemed to have disabilities. And so inclusion in that case is something we would call reverse integration. Um, And that has proved maybe a little bit more successful in terms of um, the ways in which people compete alongside of each other in ways that don't necessarily undermine the um, success and inclusion of folks with disabilities.
0: Uh, you were looking at websites in your research, um, and I've often heard a distinction made between uh, elite sports, so you know high performance, high level sports, versus uh, the, the amateur sports or the things, the sports that might be considered more community oriented, more grassroots. Did you notice a, dis- a difference in looking at the websites uh, and looking at the ways in which disability is treated when we compare elite sport organizations uh, to, let's call them the more amateur sport organizations?
1: Yeah, and of course the amateur is what I'm most interested in. I mean, I mm-hmm. I went to the Paralympics, that was great, but I'm far more interested in people having the, the capacity and, and ability to participate at a grassroots recreational level and whatever they want to play in. I mean, that, that is my passion mm-hmm. project. And so what I found is that a lot of the um, sort of integrated sports were really only interested in people who would you know, become a Paralympian in the next four or five years. <laughs> they were very elite focused. Uh, for the most part, they weren't particularly interested in that kind of um, participatory approach, even though they often ran participatory programs for non-disabled people. Mm-hmm. Um uh certainly all the the websites that were pretty good at uh treating people as athletes tended to be elite athlete uh, websites whereas the the organizations that were really most participatory tended to be and had actually like activity on how to just get involved tended to be local grassroots uh disability segregated organizations mm-hmm. and unfortunately the vast majority of those tended to represent people as um uh, charity cases or as um, people with medical conditions that needed help um, and the discourse is very much like they them <laughs> you know when you take when you look at the same organization even they'll talk about their mission in terms of uh, their non-disabled athletes it's all about sport for its own sake right sport has all these inherent mm-hmm. like great things about them and then people have a right to participate And then when you Mm -hmm. turn to these sort of grassroots, disability-focused organizations, it tends to be sport in order to rehabilitate, sport in order to include people in society, sport in order to motivate people to do more with their lives. So there's a way in which we have to be sort of um, represented as problems to be fixed in order even to access um, something to which we have, according to the United Nations, a right to access, which
0: is sport and recreation. So uh, where do we go from here? Do you have any, did you come across any examples in your research where they got it right? Tell us about if if you found anything in your research where you were really happy with the treatment of disability and the treatments of, of athletes with disabilities in those organizations? Yeah, so,
1: I mean, Athletics Canada's website is kind of poor. It's one way to access it. It's actually a screen captured is like, an image that actually has no visual description about visually impaired athletes participating. Mm-hmm. There's actually no way for them to access information about their own sport. Um, but in terms of their actual, like, strategic plan, they treat para-athletes as athletes. And mm-hmm. para is included, so you understand that we're included in it. But um, it's very much focused on us as athletes. Um, And in the ways that there are specificities, like we go to the Paralympics and the Olympics, that that is articulated. So in terms of an elite sport model, that particular document is a great example. The website sort of mimicked that. I'd be really happy. Mm -hmm. Um, At a grassroots level, uh, BC Wheelchair Sport does an excellent job. Um, They are not only very specific about who can be involved, about how to get involved. uh, They don't use any charitable discourses. Uh, they very minimalize the medical. I mean, there's the classification information, but it's not all of the information. Often the classification, which is the medical kind of rule you need to follow, is often only the only information available. Um, mm-hmm. They have that, but it's not centered. And I think most importantly, they actually explicitly talk about the kinds of bears they're trying to um, shift or undermine in their own work. So they talk about having, for example, an equipment bank where you can rent them for really inexpensively or the degree to which the coaches are actually trained in coaching, for example, an athlete with visual impairment or an athlete who uses a wheelchair. So that kind of specificity, when I come to that website, I realize, oh, I will be well-supported. I will be welcomed. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I think they did a great job.
0: You talked about specificity, you talked about coaching, you talked about equipment banks, which is a natural way to end this conversation. Uh, just before we go, Danielle, what are some of the recommendations that you're making? So what's coming out of this study that you hope will change uh, the landscape in uh, for athletes with disabilities? The biggest one, and this should be
1: obvious, is actually mention that you run programs for athletes with disabilities when you do. Uh, place them in a way that's findable on your website, not buried under age groups or something weird like that. Um, have very specific information about how people get involved and who is welcome to be involved. It's better to actually articulate who you can't support than to have people have to call and find that out sort of in a very embarrassing way. Um, uh, Organizations can be, like provincial organizations, can start to, even if you're not offering those programs, you can start linking to organizations that are running those programs so people aren't dead-ended if they don't have a program that works for you. And make sure that your website is actually accessible. Make sure that it's screen-readable about with visual impairments. Uh, Last one is treat athletes like athletes, treat participants like participants. Don't talk about an athlete with a disability in a way you would never talk about a non-disabled athlete or participant at any level.
0: You know what? I have just about 30 seconds to ask you that controversial question that I at first Hi. thought I wasn't going to get a chance to ask you. Uh, so there's a debate raging. Uh, you might have probably heard about this. Do we do away with the Paralympics? Do we just have uh, an Olympics and we allow athletes with disabilities to compete? So what do you think? Do you think we should maintain the, the separation between Olympics and Paralympics or do we collapse it into one event? What do you think? I'm- fully against collapsing it. And one of the reasons is when they've tried to make the Paralympics more um, sellable, what they
1: do is they tend to cut uh, uh, competitions of those athletes who have the more significant impairments. And so guaranteed, if it came to join the Olympics, we'd be keeping about five different um, competitions and the people who'd be cut would be people with the most significant impairments. Uh, And so for me, I could not be more against this idea.
0: (laughs) And I think we need
1: to keep the range of bodies that are playing the Paralympics. And in fact, we need to increase the range of bodies who are competing in parasport at all levels.
0: Oh, excellent. Well, on that note, Danielle Pierce, thank you very much for being on the program. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Danielle Pierce from the University of Alberta. We talked about their recent paper that looked at the presence and treatment of people with disabilities Uh, on the websites of various athletics organizations. If you missed any of my conversation with Danielle, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform, I'm just going to say I love this conversation. Lots for me to think about on here, but I will say that it's better to be upfront about who you can support and who you can integrate rather than leaving it up to the person with a disability to call and find out. And I will echo what Danielle said about putting that information out there clearly, specifically and right on top. If you'd like to get more from me, you can head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Danielle Pierce for being on the program today. Our technical producer is Mr. Sreen Abdul Majid, Andy Frank is the manager of AMI Audio, and Paula Dineen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day.